Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. My business partner, John, and I have been running our company for over 17 years. We've always been big believers in the idea that you create the right seats on the bus, and then you go fill those seats with the right people. But when you're a family-owned business, in a lot of ways, the people are kind of already there. And you have to figure out how to fit them into those seats and to fill in the holes around them. In this conversation, my guest will talk about the dynamics of running a family-owned manufacturing business, a topic of relevance for so much of the manufacturing sector. Let me introduce him. Ryan Margolin, CEO of Professional Hair Labs, set out on a journey to help create the world's leading product in cosmetic bonding when his mother was poisoned by the harmful chemicals in the hair adhesive products commonly used in the industry. Inspired to keep the same thing from happening to anybody else, his family dove into the research and created their first hair care product free of harmful substances. Now, nearly 20 years later, Ryan is an international business leader and an entrepreneur who works in more than 15 different countries. There, he helps create sustainable services and products in industries full of subpar and even harmful options. With the help of Ryan's expertise in effectively taking concepts and formulating strategies for success in multiple different industries, as well as his flexibility, clarity, and dedication to putting people first, Professional Hair Labs has expanded its manufacturing tenfold grown to become one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the U.S. over the last five years and has sold more than 50 million in product globally. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation and I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much. Ryan, I know your family has been in the hair product industry going a long way back, but I also know you have sort of a personal story that we hinted at in the bio that really motivated you as you took on a leadership role at the company. Can you share that with our audience? So the company started in 1994, actually, when my dad sold the hair replacement businesses that himself and my mother had owned. Uh, my mother had to retire early due to getting chemical poisoning from the products that she was exposed to on a daily basis. You know. Back in those days, the industry was deemed too small by the FDA to you know regulate, so they didn't really do anything. And uh, manufacturers were allowed you know put product into uh, the supply chains that just simply weren't safe for technicians or individuals who wore wigs or hair systems. So, no matter how well ventilated the area was over time, that would naturally have a detrimental effect to a person's health. So, you know, my mom was forced kind of to retire early. She didn't really go back to work after that, you know, although she, you know, she, she's okay today, but it did have some longstanding health implications. So uh, push forward, you know, 15 years, you know, the company started to grow little by little and it was remaining, you know, somewhere in the low six figures, 250, 275 K per year, because it was very difficult to actually teach an industry how to attach hair systems with a new application process. They were so set in their ways and used to doing things only one way. 
but over time, we started to break down that that you know that that belief system that that technicians had, and we launched a product into the marketplace that solved a lot of problems. So that's kind of where the the start of the journey happened. I think um, you know opportunity met fortune at the right time, and I think everything happens for a reason. And um, we just traveled the journey as it was put in front of us, really. I love the origin story. It's it's pretty cool when you can take a, a personal experience like that, something that you know deeply affected you and family or friends, loved ones, and were able to you know turn it into some good that also you know became a, a really successful business. So props to you for what you've been able to do there. I know I appreciate that. And look again, you know, as you go along the journey, you know, there's an awful lot of changes and awful lot of lessons. And look, I think you know, as as you scale a company or it starts to grow, I think one of the real challenges is ensuring that you you're keeping that you know core mission of why the company was started at the forefront of everything you do because you know your team starts to grow and you need to make sure that you're bringing the right team you know into the company that knows what you're doing and knows what you're trying to achieve and believes in it more importantly. So uh, again, that's all part of the the learning process. Well, Ryan, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about here today is just sort of the dynamics of a family business. And I, I know a lot of manufacturing leaders I talk to both as a podcast host and as owner of a marketing agency that works with mid-sized manufacturers. Uh, a lot of these businesses come from second, third, sometimes even fourth generation family-owned businesses. And I'd love to just kind of open it up to you and let you talk about some of the dynamics of leading a family-run business, because I imagine there are plenty of challenges when your team is also your family. You know, look at the very beginning uh, when the company was quite small. Uh, look, and I mean, it's still a small business. We, we employ somewhere around 30 people at the moment. But, you know, you're working in a close environment with your family members, and sometimes it's hard to separate, you know, the personal from the business. Uh, But as time goes on with experience, you do get better with that. But I think the key amongst all of it is that, and I learned this very early on, is that naturally we've kind of been, we've been blessed with a very empathetic uh, mindset where we do actually look at each situation from the point of another. And I think that's helped us navigate a lot of the really big, hard, challenging issues, because no matter how tough things got at different times, even between us, there was always that awareness that what we were doing was coming from a place of care and love. You know what I mean? So I think naturally we we were fortunate in that respect. But I do feel that working in a family business requires a lot more than just understanding each other and being on the same page. I think it requires the ability to develop as an individual to meet the needs of the company and to be very clear about what you can bring to the table. And I think that's naturally how we all found our roles in the company. We looked, you know, historically what the contribution was, what people are good at and what they're not so good at. And um, we sat into the roles that would help us develop those parts of the business uh, effectively. And look, I amongst all the challenges and, and ups and downs, I think we did a pretty good job at it because we've been able to scale the business, you know, from six to seven to eight figures on an annual basis. And um, we'll continue to move that way and continue to drive the mission that that really started it all, which was, you know, safe, high performing products for people who wear hair systems and wigs. Yeah, well, I'm always impressed when, you know, I, I can look inside a company that, that is a family business and they've not only made it work, but they've, you know, made it very successful. Because I think about, you know, my companies, um, we're about to be 27 people, so not too different from where you guys are at. We've been building it for 17 years, but it is not a family business. It's me and my business partner started this, you know, essentially a few years after college. And I think about like, core to the way at the center of the way we have hired throughout the years it's been very core value based but it's always been about what is the seat we need 
And then let's go find the person for the seat. When you're in a family business, it's these are the people we have and let's make sure we can, you know, get use their, you know, the things that they are truly good at and passionate about to fit the roles we need. So I, I just imagine it's a very different way of building a business. You kind of have what you have and you got to fill in around that, right? You do, but the, there was a, a very specific kind of method that we used to figure that out. And um, it was a time study. And I know like certain people hear the word time study and they're like, just they push it away with a 10 foot pole. But uh, time studies are not about, I suppose, exposing the weaknesses or, you know, what a person is doing or not doing. It's really about to really truly get a good reflection of what are you doing in the business on a daily basis and what percentage of that is contributing, you know, to either uh, strategic or tactical or in, you know, is what's become most important now out of all of it is self care. So years ago, that's one of the processes that we use to actually figure out, you know, what we're doing in the business and what is actually happening. And that gave us the knowledge and the power to actually say, okay, well, we know this is what we're doing and this is the outcome. But it also let us know what are some of the things that we need to get off our plates to hire the right people and what are those responsibilities going to be? So what we do, or I still do it every now and again, you know, what we did at that time was for two weeks in 15 minute intervals, we would record what we were doing at that time. And then after, you know, as the day goes on, we would calculate how much of that time was spent in strategic tasks, how much time was spent in uh, tactical tasks, and then how much time during the day we were giving to ourselves just for a bit of a break or downtime. And we'd even include, you know, our home time as well in this, you know, to see what we're doing. So at the end of the week, we would tally that up and make a percentage. And over two weeks, we'd see, you know, what's tactical, what's strategic, and how much time we're spending on self-care for ourselves. And if we found ourselves really high in the tactical position, we were like, okay, we're actually doing too much and we're becoming the bottleneck in the company. So we need to actually take these tasks that we're doing and we're that are making us stay so high in the tactical area, and we need to hire somebody to actually do those tasks. And then naturally, it's just a circle, you know, comes back around, you offload, you hire someone in for the role. And then, you know, two or three months later, you're finding yourself in that same circle again, because that's the nature of growing a business. It's just an evolution that keeps going in circles and moving forward like a loop-de-loop. So that was one of the key takeaways for me over the years is that that had the biggest impact for us. And it was so simple, you know, but again... Sometimes you don't see the simplicity in front of you. And I usually find that simple solutions create the biggest impact. Sometimes you just need somebody to put it in front of you and say, I think this is what you need to do. And that's the beauty about having, you know, good sounding boards around you that have experienced it in the past. Oh, that's, that's really great. And you touched on that whole concept of, you know, what I think of as delegate and elevate, which I don't know if that's a term. I, th- I think that term may have come from, from EOS or traction for anybody listening who runs on that operating system. But, you know, that's something we've dealt with over the years too. My business partner, John and I, when we founded our business, it was just the two of us. And I remember, I can remember doing this exercise, not too different from what you did there, where we kind of wrote down, we like sat down and wrote down, what are all the things that we do in this business? Just everything from the minuscule daily grind tasks to the super strategic things. And I remember prioritizing them and say, I want to take this hat off first and then this one and then this one until all that's left are these things. And, and you know, after many years, it's sort of like my role right now at the company is 
marketing for Gorilla, this podcast being part of it, sales for Gorilla and some high level strategic, you know, consulting for our clients. And that is really it. And I think everybody who's in any kind of leadership role or trying to move into a leadership role, you need to be kind of thinking the same way, like your time is limited, right? And there's only so much of it you have, and it can only be scaled so much. So how do, how do you create the most value there? Where can you offload things that are trainable or can be processized and then find other people to do them and let them work their way up eventually too. And that's the beauty going back to the, you know, the processes or operating procedures, you know, when, when you have a repeatable process that can, you know, you can train somebody on document them, you know, and have them in your, your central folder. And then that way people can refer to them because to me, that was one of the biggest time savers of all. It's like, you know, you, you would come in and you would train, you know, somebody to use a machine or to, you know, how, how to fill a certain collective of bottles and what the packaging need to look like. But if you're doing that six or seven times a month, that's, you know, that's 20 hours that are, that's gone, you know? So spend four or five hours documenting the process and then everyone has it for eternity unless you need to change it, you know? And not only for efficiency purposes, but I think when you're not documenting processes like that, the tribal knowledge you build can be really dangerous because, you know, maybe different in a family business, maybe not, but, you know, people leave. And when that happens and so much of your your knowledge and, and um, experience is tied up in, in a few people, and you haven't taken the time to document that it's can you put yourself at a lot of risk i think you do and i mean like case in point is you know if you're let's say you're in a business you know to build value in it to exit what is the first thing a potential buyer is going to ask for your sops why because if the business is too reliant on you they're not going to want to buy it you know what i mean because you're the key to it all and it's like it doesn't make sense there's no value in that because if you get hit by a bus tomorrow you're not there What's the business going to do? So, yeah, absolutely. The processes are key to maintaining everything in a business. Yeah, 100%. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50-plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Well, Ryan, staying on this topic of kind of the family business, you know, what one thing that obviously we're seeing, this is no news to anybody, but we're seeing, you know, boomers retiring, this whole generation that is exiting manufacturing pretty quickly at this point at a faster and faster rate. You have the next generation taking the reins. And so I think probably succession planning is a topic that's on the line or on the minds of a lot of manufacturing leaders out there. 
I know you guys have gone through this not long ago, and I'm I'm just curious to hear like what is that succession? What did that succession planning process look like inside of your organization, and what were some of the considerations that had to be sort of looked at? It was extremely painful, only for the simple fact is we did it too like you know, look, you can make succession plans, you know, look, as as a business owner, you can make succession plans without actually really turning over all of the ownership of a company or all of the uh, the control that you have in your own company. And I think the earlier you can get in to think about the future of the business, if you want it to be, you know, uh, within your family moving forward, I think the earlier you do that, the better, because then you start to cap value at things and, you know, you bring people in. So for us, the process took quite a few years. And, you know, likewise, you cannot cut corners at who you hire to help you with this, because ultimately, when you do any type of succession planning from a tax perspective, you know, the tax authorities are going to be looking at it very closely. So you need to make sure you you have all the documents in place, all the agreements, you're treating everything at an arm's length with the deal. And then you're creating a structure that makes sense, you know, from a tax perspective. I, th- I think restructuring can be quite painful, but can also provide a lot of opportunity. Like for us, for example, we changed, you know, from a standard company to a structure, a group structure, and we've been able to utilize some of the lower corporation tax offerings to us because of that. So naturally, the expense that we had, you know, for year one, two or three over the space of a year and a half is realistically all offset with the saving and corporation tax. And we have that structure now moving forward. So there's a big difference between 27 to 12 and a half percent. You know what I mean? It's a lot of money. It gives you scope to reinvest everything you've got back into the business and help it keep growing. Some of the challenges that I found through that process is really having those awkward conversations that just simply need to be had. Nobody likes it. It is uncomfortable. But ultimately, if you're all coming from a place of wanting the best for the company, you'll ultimately be able to figure it out and communicate. And if it doesn't you know, suit one or the other, they have the option to just, you know, go a different direction. You know, it's as simple as that. Fortunately for us, that wasn't the case. I think the biggest part, the biggest challenge for us throughout that process was the conversations around the uh, transfer of ownership, you know, you know, making sure that the individual in this case was my father having enough income for the rest of his life and making sure that he leveraged the value that was built in the company to ensure that happens, you know? So we we were able to successfully do that. And look, I think it's helped us, uh, you know, so far in the short term, it's helped us like tenfold. Um, I mean, we've already saved, we're three years into this now. Last year was the actual changeover and we've saved at least, you know, I'd say close to a million dollars in taxes, which ultimately has allowed us to expand our operating space and, and machinery we need to manufacture. So you just have to think outside the box and hire good people to help you do that. I can't speak to this firsthand, but I've, I've observed from the outside, having worked with so many manufacturers over the years, I've observed some pretty ugly transitions from one generation to the next. And there's one thing I'm thinking of in person in particular, where it was sort of an, one expectation from a you know, couple of the children in the business, right? Who were adults, of course, but the father who was the founder and everybody kind of had a different expectations about what was going to happen. And all of a sudden the time came for the transition to sort of start and nobody was on the same page. And one of them left the business in a pretty angry state and another one took on a different role than he thought he was going to take on. And there was, you know, a headhunter looking to fill the position that both of them thought they were about to inherit. And I imagine there's just a lot of dynamics that are are really challenging when, you know, somebody is your employee as opposed to somebody who is your son or daughter. 
Exactly. And, and I think that's why communication is key because you, you have to set out those expectations at the very beginning. Because once you, I'm a believer that, you know, look, once you know where everyone stands, uh, there's always a common ground to be found. But if you don't have those conversations and then you're left with a challenge or you're left with something right in front of you that you have to deal with in the short term, that's when you get emotional. And look, I mean, throughout any business challenge, whether it's succession planning or, you know, operational challenges, your your mind has to be stronger than your feelings. Because if you don't allow that stance within yourself, you're making emotional decisions that are ultimately, actually, I don't even think there's any emotional decision that anyone's ever made that's worked out too well for them. You know what I mean? It's, uh, you just, you have to be very logical and pragmatic about your approach when it comes to these sort of things. And I, I think, you know, if you're not that type of person naturally, you need to be a better communicator and, and actually prepare yourself for it. Well, I applaud any company, yours included, who's successfully gone through such a transition because I imagine, you know, sort of separating the the emotional from the logical sides of your, your brains is that much more challenging when it's it's your own family. So you do. And yeah, and you know what? That's something I think from a personal development perspective, I, I think that's one of the keys that you need to work on is just, you know, like lowering your expectations in terms of what you, you know, you expect in general and just, you know, communicating and talking because, you know, expectations at the end of the day are just gateways to resentment if they're not, you know, effectively communicated. So well, Ryan, let's shift gears here for a minute. I, another topic that I know you're, you're passionate about that I, I was very curious to ask you about is IP protection, something I haven't really talked about on this show with any of my guests. And I, I'm just kind of curious to hear what you have to say about that topic and why it's a, a subject that's important to you. Well, it's important to me for a couple of reasons. I mean, look, the business that we're in and the products we manufacture or develop and manufacture are, you know, applied to the skin. So again, driving the mission that we've always had of, you know, safety and performance. When your brand is counterfeited, uh, you don't really think about the serious implications of it until it actually happens. For us, you know, we had a U.S. trademark and we didn't really have good representation on that uh, guidance. And, you know, we really didn't think about the impact of counterfeits because, you know, when you start a brand, you don't really think that that's going to happen to you. You know, you look at you know handbags and you look at shirts like Gucci and, you know, the, you know whatever, whatever the designer brands are, they're all counterfeited throughout the world. But you don't really think about how that applies to you. So naturally, we had our U.S. trademark. And what we found very quickly is that counterfeits started appearing in the Chinese market. And, you know, one listing was there. I remember seeing it kind of just got really irritated with it, really emotional about it because it just challenged the whole foundations of what the company was built on because, you know, our our they were selling a, a bottle of our adhesive for like a dollar, you know what I mean? And it's like, you can't even manufacture it for a dollar. <laughs> so what is actually in that bottle? You know, that, that, that leads to question. So one listing turned into three and 30 and a hundred. And before you know it, over a space of a couple of years, there's thousands of listings. So these counterfeiters penetrated our distribution channels. They actually ended up in places that we weren't, you know? And and so we had a choice then at that point. We realized IP is hugely important. So we went straight for the jugular and we threw it through our, we, we got some really good IP attorneys in three different locations across the world and they worked together very well. And we ended up, um, fortunately, we ended up doing an undercover surveillance and investigation where we were able to get this trademark owner in China in front of us and get on camera that he was unethically, you know, leveraging the trademark in bad faith. And we were able to get the trademark body in China, which again, I only now know is pretty much unheard of. They revoked his trademark and actually granted it to us. 
that was five and a half years ago. And we actually only got the trademark about a month ago. That's how long it took. So um, now we've been able to go immediately in and, you know, uh, through different investigations, uh, raid factories that are manufacturing our brand, you know, basically stop the supply at the source. We were always focused on, you know, cutting the head off the snake at the point of import, which is into the country that that is being sold. But it doesn't necessarily work all the time. You've actually got to show them that you're willing to go to every corner of the world and stop this. So huge expense, but we're making uh, a very clear point that what you're counterfeiting is not a piece of clothing. You know, not that it's any less important, but it is something that you're putting on your skin. And if you want to damage our brand by selling subpar products that you don't own the rights to, we're not going to sit around and, and take that. So from an IP perspective, I would always say if you're a manufacturer, whether you're making your own product or for someone else, always have a good IP attorney on hand to actually guide you on you know, the IP strategy that you need to roll out in certain countries, depending on where you're targeting. You know, if you've got a five-year plan where you're looking to target, you know, certain countries, put them into your IP plan. And then, you know, once a year, take on two or three new applications and then, you know, just roll it out. And over time, you'd be surprised. Like there's this thing called the WIPO system where it allows you to submit one application, but then you can actually like a spider's web, go out to multiple different countries for a really low price, for a much lower price than it would be per application. You get a ton of different trademarks for really great value. Now, naturally, if there's a problem and you get refusal on some of them, there will be some extra costs involved in going back and disputing or not disputing, arguing the points that they refused. And in most cases, it's pretty straightforward. You win it and they issue you the trademark, but you could save hundreds of thousands doing that. Wow. Well, that's good advice. And man, it must just have been infuriating to watch some of this stuff play out and you you pour your heart and soul into creating a, a product and having a mission behind it. And, and then somebody else just decides, oh, this is not, I'm just going to use it now and I'm going to profit off it. It's just got to be. Yeah. And you know what I said? Look, it still happens to this day. You know, every day we see it when I, you know, go through social media, search the brand and see, you know, what's being said. You know, I, I see it all the time. And, you know, look for the everyday user that don't know that what they have in their hand is not legitimate. I'll reach out to them online through the company profile and be like, listen, you know, let's turn this positive or negative into a positive, you know, and we'll, we'll send you some, uh, we'll send you some, some free product and uh, you can see what the real, you know, product is, is meant to do. And uh, you you basically turn someone who had complaints into a you know into into a loyal customer. Then I've watched intellectual property stolen more in, in my world in the context of information. That you know, I've had clients who's you know, we invested they've invested in building you know huge websites filled with you know all this expertise and knowledge from the brains of their their subject matter experts, and then we'll come across some other company that literally just did a copy and paste and just all the information and put their name on it and their logo on it. And we've, there's been one client of ours who this has happened to a few times over the last decade or so. And, you know, we've kind of just had, had attorneys write cease and assist letters and it's, it's worked out all of these times, but it just blows my mind that people think that this is okay to just go steal information and just make it their own. Like, how do you wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror when that's the way you're operating a business? And like, for me, looking at that situation, it's like, if you're going to do that, at least give credit to where it's coming from. You know what I mean? Don't just brand it as your own. Like, I mean, I love the fact that the world, we can share any information we want, but don't pretend something's yours if it's not, you know, it just ultimately people see through that as well. You know, it's, um, 
And all it takes is one person to just shed the light on it and you're done. You you built a business on somebody else's knowledge and then it'll it'll just it'll leave just as quick as you gained it. Yeah. Can't be a winning recipe. No, absolutely not. Well, Ryan, I really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you'd like to add to the discussion today? No, not really. I mean, look, you know, as as business owners, entrepreneurs, you know, in the manufacturing space, I just think, you know, that the, the question you always have to kind of pull yourself back and, and answer, you know, is, are you happy with that reflection that, you know, you see in the mirror at the end of the day, you know, when you're building a company, you know, no one's coming to save you, you have to be your own hero. And, you know, in order to do that, you need to have some very honest conversations with yourself and always take a look at, you know, yourself in terms of leadership to see, okay, well, what's the problem in front of me? Am I the bottleneck? And am, am I the reason things aren't moving forward? Because uh, in some cases, you just haven't really become the person you need to be to run your company. And uh, I think, you know, keeping yourself in check and honest on that level will keep you moving forward if you're willing to do the work. Well said. And really appreciate you doing this today, Ryan. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about Professional Hair Labs? Sure. So uh, the company Professional Hair Labs is on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, LinkedIn. My main hang- uh, hangout is LinkedIn. So look, I'm, I'm always on that platform. Um, if anyone had any specific questions, I'm always happy to help, you know. Perfect. Well, Ryan, thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much, Joe. Appreciate it. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.